Well, Brandon already prayed, but we do want to recognize and say thank you to, to the veterans who are among us, uh, the, the men and women who have served our country in this way. And the freedoms we're enjoying right now are really a direct result of, of your sacrifice and, and labor in that way. And um, there are brothers and sisters around the world who do not share those same freedoms right now. And so we, we think of, you know, 1 Timothy 2, how we're called to pray for our government leaders, even as Brandon just did, you know, that we may lead a, a tranquil and quiet life, we're told, in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And so in the providence of God, he's placed us here at this time in this country when we enjoy this very thing. And so uh, certainly God uses governments to preserve that. So, um, so again, if you served in the Army, Navy, Coast Guard, Air Force, Marines, we want to say thank you to you. And uh, we praise God for that. Go ahead and, if you have, would you stand up for us? I know people hate when I do it, but stand up if you're a veteran. Thank you. Something else that we want to commemorate today is uh, the fact that we just touched on it. It goes well with Veterans Day, uh, the Persecuted Church Sunday, uh, because we have, again, brothers and sisters around the world who don't enjoy the freedoms that we enjoy right now. And so these two things go together well. Um, we've got people this, at this moment who are around the world in jail, some are being tortured, some have been killed because of one thing. They want to follow our Lord Jesus Christ. And they're from countries all over, all over uh, many different places. And, and what we see in the headlines right now, and that's part of the problem is we, if we allow the news cycle to inform our perspective more than God's word and what God's actually doing right now, we can just become so just, what's the point? Forget it. I'm done with everything. I'm just going to go off into my own little hole. I'll decorate the hole nicely, but I'm going to just stay there instead of dealing with what's really happening around us. Uh, but the Lord doesn't let us do that uh, because in the midst of those trials, in the midst of all that, that, that our brothers and sisters are facing in these places, God's doing glorious things. Uh, I want to just mention one, one, one country in particular, and, and that would be Iran. Uh, if, if anything, probably a lot of the things happening right now as we speak in the Middle East, especially with, with Israel, those things are funded by and being pushed by Iran. Why? Because they have an agenda for that region. And it's with them at the top of that. And yet, you know what's happening? There's a wonderful statistic I want to share with you. It comes from um, Operation World. And, and note what I'm about to say. Evangelical Christianity. Okay, in other words... Bible believing, not, not just the title Christian that gets flown, you know, flung around all over the place. No, evangelical Christianity is growing in Iran right now at a rate of 19.6% annually. Yeah. Uh, what does that mean? That actually means that Iran is the country with the highest evangelical growth rate in the world right now. <laughs> it shouldn't be happening, should it? No. If you look at all the, again, news, current events, powers, governments, this shouldn't be happening. But it is. Why? Because the gospel 
is mighty, that the Lord Jesus is building his kingdom. His kingdom will have no end, and it's happening right now. But what does that mean for us? It means that we need to be, as um, fellow believers in Jesus, we need to be praying for our, our brothers and sisters there in Iran. We, we need to do that. And so what we want to do right now is just take a moment to do that. And I'm going to uh, list out several different things we can be praying for. But uh, we're going to stop and just take some time to pray. Now, now, some of you are like, do not make me pray with other people. I won't. I won't. Okay. You can, if you want to just bow your head and pray, you may. If you want to gather with people that are near you to pray, you can. By the way, if you're a person who really doesn't want to have someone gather with you, just put your head down and start praying. They'll leave you alone. Okay. That's going to be the little cue. All right. So we don't want to put anybody in an awkward place. That's fine. But here are several things I want you to take note of that we can be praying for right now for Iran. One, we can pray that the leadership of the country would turn to Jesus. That happens. It's a beautiful thing when it does. And um, so um, the, the supreme leader there is Ali Hosseini Khamenei. So please pray that he would come to know Jesus. We can pray that the new Farsi resources that are going into the country right now, that they would reach people, especially children. There's a lot of brave people that are bringing in resources for them in Farsi. We can pray for the safety of underground printers who are involved in, in the production of Farsi Bibles. So let's pray specifically for that. We can pray for the house church leaders in Iran, that they would receive um, courage from God, that they'd be able to stand firm and that they'd be able to reach people, that they'd be able to live their lives under this Islamist oppression with grace. We can pray that, that uh, Christians that are in prison for their faith will be a witness in prison and that God would keep them and protect them. Uh, we can pray for the protection for people who are actually smuggling in other materials for people. So some's being printed in country, others are bringing them in from outside, but we can pray for safety for them. And then we can also pray for those who are uh, just under the pressure right now that they would be encouraged, whether it's threat of imprisonment or torture or death, that they would right now in this moment by the Spirit sense a buoyancy of heart in Christ, that they would be able to resound with what we just sang, my soul, trust in God alone. And so let's just take some time right now. And again, you can pray quietly. You can gather with others to pray out loud. Let's just bring these things before God.
Lord, we want to thank you for the work you are doing in Iran right now against every human principle that would be at work against your furthering of your kingdom. We thank you, Lord, that there's a, an abundant number of people that are being born again. We thank you that there are house churches meeting covertly. We, th- we thank you that uh, there are courageous brothers and sisters that are enduring prison and some are enduring torture and some are even losing their lives even in the name of standing for you. And we pray for your grace to be just flowing in and around and through the church there in Iran. Please protect those who are, who are bringing uh, materials into the country. We would pray, Lord, that you would bless the underground printers who are producing Farsi Bibles and other resources for people. And Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would be glorified. We thank you that your kingdom, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is unstoppable. We thank you that the gospel brings life even in the most rocky soils. And so we, we, we praise you for these things and we look to you to, to care for the persecuted church there. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. As we think about that, it's, it's, it's sobering, isn't it? I mean, it really, and it should be. It really should be. It should be something that causes us to kind of stop and go, wow. But it also should cause us to give thanks uh, because of, again, God's kindness and God's work. It, it cannot be stopped. Uh, we're going to be entering into a season where many people will be singing Handel's Messiah. And, and what's that glorious refrain there? His kingdom is what? Forever. It's forever. And, and there's always opposition, though. There's always opposition. And I, w- I would invite you now to open uh, to Luke chapter 6. Verses 1 to 11, because that's where we find ourselves in this account as well. Opposition is increasing towards Jesus. And that's something that we should expect. And, and it's, it's the kind of thing where, you know, in the, in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, uh, as he came on the scene, he was, he was very popular. And that popularity was growing. And, you know, Galilee, Judea, news spreads, interest peaks. And eventually, it's not just among the common people. It started there. But soon the religious leaders are hearing about this Jesus of Nazareth. And so they come along and they start looking at him with a more critical eye. And they begin to see him as, as a dangerous person to them, to, to their standing, to the place that they have in the culture and in society. And so Luke is recording this for us and he's showing increasing opposition against Jesus. And, and, uh, and Jesus is now addressing the religious leaders. And it's funny because he's not avoiding it. You know, he doesn't just sort of like, oh, wow, religious leaders are here. Wow, I better say things that are going to make them feel happy. I would hate to offend them. No, he doesn't. He, he invites them. He, he, he calls them to, to come to him. The gospel, the good news about Jesus is, is as much for them as anybody. But he's also not going to compromise and he's not going to tone things down. And so we left off last week where, where Jesus teaches that, that their traditionalism, 
the Pharisees and the Sadducees traditionalism is very much like a, a new garment with an old patch or an old garment with a new patch. In other words, they're thinking, hey, we'll consider Jesus as an add-on, but we're not going to change who we are. And he says, no, that's not going to work. There is no new patch for the old garment. They tear apart. They don't work together. I'm, what I'm bringing is new, he's saying. And then he goes on to talk about how new wine, if put in old wineskins, what happens? The wineskins burst. You can't do that. What Jesus is doing, he's bringing something that's new. And so now the Pharisees are going are to push back. And they're going to start trying to find places to push back uh, that, that become sort of like a, a it's almost comical. They're, they're just looking for these small little things that they can criticize Jesus about. Because they're trying to just look for that handle so they can get rid of this guy. And so that's where we find ourselves in, in Luke chapter 6. And in honor of God's word, would you please stand and follow along as I read? Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Now it happened that he was passing through some of the grain fields on a Sabbath, and his disciples were picking the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, and eating the grain. But some of the Pharisees said, Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answering them said, have you not even read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat except the priests alone, and gave it to his companions. And he was saying to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And there was a man there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. But he knew what they were thinking. And he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he got up and came forward. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to destroy it? After looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. But they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. Lord, as we look at this passage together, we ask that you would, by your spirit, change us. We pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to see where we stand with you and help us to see if there are ways in which our own hearts are perhaps caught up in some of the same tendencies as these opponents of Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in our lives. And we thank you again for this time together and what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and take your seats. So if there's one thing you remember from our time together today, let it be this. Self-righteous religion ruins, Christ's reign renews. Self-righteous religion ruins, Christ's reign renews. And we're going to see that under, under kind of two headings. The ruin of religion and then the renewal from Jesus. But... 
first we're going to see the, the, the ruin of religion. And that, we find that in verses 1 and 2. Um, you see what Jesus is doing. They're passing through grain fields on the Sabbath. And, and, and this is a very typical customary thing to do. There were a lot of grain fields in the land. And people had to get from point A to point B. And so as they're, as they're going along, they're, they're picking heads of grain and rubbing their hands together to eat it. And, and God makes this provision for travelers. If you were to look, for example, at Deuteronomy 23, verse 25, it says this, when you enter into your neighbor's standing grain, then you may pluck the head with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. So in other words, you can't just go off to your neighbor's field and harvest their grain and take it. Okay, that's, that's stealing things. But, but you can take small portions of what's there, what's reasonable to, to stave off hunger. And you're welcome to do that. And so the Old Testament provided for that, and, and it, and it uh, didn't restrict it just to six days a week. So it just said you could do it. And, 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 and the Old Testament didn't restrict a lot of other things too, but here's the problem. The Pharisees have come along. They're under the oppression of Rome. They're looking at how did that happen, and they're going, you know how that happened? We disobeyed God. That's how the Babylonian captivity happened. That's how all these oppressors from, from Old Testament times came in. We did not obey God. And so the Pharisees go, what we're going to do is we're going to make sure we do everything we can to never, ever possibly cross over or violate God's law. So how are we going to do that? And they go, wait, we've got an idea. If God's law says this, we're going to... Wow, that's a really great sound. Is that like a horn or something? The calling of the horn. All right, sorry. Uh, if God's law says this, we're going to build a fence around it. So that not only are we not going to violate God's law, we're not even going to get close to it. And so they invented all these other rules and laws, and they wrote them down in various places. And the Talmud would be one place where you find some of those things. And, and it got to the point of just being ridiculous. I'll give you some examples. You could not bathe for fear that when the water fell off you, it might wash the floor. Because that's working. You can't wash the floor on the Sabbath. So don't bathe. Lots of people were super stinky on the Sabbath, right? If a candle was lit, you couldn't put it out. And if it wasn't lit, you couldn't light it. Chairs couldn't be moved um, because they could make a rut. Women couldn't look in a glass or they might find a white hair and be tempted to pull it out. Women couldn't wear jewelry because jewelry weighs more than a dried fig. A radish couldn't be left in salt because it would make it pickle and that's work. You see what's going on? ridiculousness. And so here the Pharisees are saying, hey, you can't do that. You can't pick grain and rub it with your hands. No, you know why? Because picking, that's harvesting. And rubbing it, yeah, that, that's actually processing the wheat. You know? You're getting the, you're getting the, the good out. You're, you're kind of um, threshing it at that point. And then if you eat it, do you, from, when your hand goes from here to here, that's preparing food. You can't do that. And you, and you look at that, you're going, what? And here again, you know, self-righteousness 
religion, self-righteous religion ruins. Christ's reign renews. That's what they're doing. They're, they're in this self-righteous mode. Look at us. We've got it together. Again, it's all driven by fear. We don't like what's happening to us. We don't want the oppression of, of foreign nations. We want to regain the prominence we had at one time as a nation. Uh, we want to preserve our culture and our religion. We don't want the pervading secular pagan culture to overtake us. And so we're making a bunch of arbitrary rules so that we won't even get close to it. And in doing so, what do they do? They miss out on the whole point of everything. That's why Jesus and other places will say, you are the guys, Pharisees, you will strain out a gnat, but you'll swallow a camel. And so we can see this happening here and, 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 and it's, it's, Absurd. And so Jesus is going to respond, and, uh, and in answering them, he's going he's to give them a view of what it means to be renewed by him. And that's what, where we find renewal from Jesus. Look at how he responds. You got to love how it starts. Have you not even read? Talk about one thing that's going to really just kind of provoke a Pharisee and a Sadducee is going to be saying, hey, have you ever, you ever read the Bible before? They prided themselves on that. That's what they did. They spent hours studying it. They would, they would pour over it. They would memorize huge sections of it. They knew it by heart. They didn't just read it. They were experts in the law. And Jesus is going, hey, have you ever read this before? It's meant to kind of go, wait, what are you talking about? Of course we have. And then he goes on to describe this beautiful thing that's just, that's, that, we, that we find in the life of David. In, in, in 2 Samuel, as he is um, traveling with his uh, men, these mighty men, they come to a place where they, they're hungry and there's nothing else they can eat except for the consecrated bread. You talk about that. That's like grain in a field. This is bread that's been consecrated for the purposes of worshiping Yahweh. Only the priests could eat that. And yet, David fed them. What's he saying there? You know, David's action was technically a breach of the law because the priests only could eat that, and David was not a priest. But the need of his guys, the need of the, the troops he had with him, overrode this human need to eat, and so no one blamed him. In other words, the Sabbath rules and the Sabbath regulations, they're not there to, to uh, press down upon human need or human flourishing or human freedom. And so in some ways, what, what Jesus is saying is your Sabbath might be the one that leaves people destitute and hungry. My Sabbath rest brings provision and satisfaction. I don't disregard human need. No, instead, I'm here to provide. So, so human need is not to be subjected to, to this kind of legalism. And then, you know, he, he even describes it more when he says in verse 5, look what he says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Okay, 
bold declaration. Again, whenever Jesus uses that term, son of man, we need to remember that he's referring back to Daniel chapter 7. This is the the righteous king who's going to come back to make all wrongs right, to to bring a truth and and, and restoration and and to bring justice and to to cause there to be a, a flourishing amongst his people. This is a royal title. It's a divine title. And so when he says the son of man, he's referring to himself, is Lord of the Sabbath. That would have just smacked these religious leaders in the face. What? Who does this guy think he is? And the reality is, it's not who does this guy think he is. It's really who does this guy know he is? Because he is. God is the one who established the Sabbath. God alone set aside that day for the good of his people. He did that back in Genesis chapter 2. The creation account itself. God made the universe, made all things in six days. On the seventh, he rested. God made it a holy day. He he, he made it a, a day that's to be celebrated and goes all the way back to creation. And so... Because of that, before Moses, before Abraham, this principle of rest was established. And so when Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, he is striking a major blow against the Pharisaic system. Because really their system that they developed, it was a system of works, merit, self-righteousness, achievement, attainment. And, and, you, and you grasp this by climbing, climbing really hard, and you wanted to reach up to God through ceremony and ritual and, and external law-keeping. And the focal point of all of that really was the Sabbath. Every seventh day of the week was the main day for the Pharisees' religious practices. And so when, when Jesus does this, he's actually directly confronting them at their most sensitive point. And again, he's saying, it might be your kind of Sabbath to leave people hungry, but my Sabbath is one whereby the needs of people are actually met. Jesus has come to mercifully meet the needs of all who turn to him. And on that Sabbath day and on other ones as well, as we'll see, he broke the religious convention of the time in order to care for people because those things were actually in the way of doing the very things God's called us to do, his people. And so what he's saying is, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, Pharisees, don't tell me how to celebrate the Sabbath. Because at that creation moment, when God rested, I was there. I'm the Lord. I'm the Son of Man. So don't Give me your cutesy little rules. And don't pretend like you're made right with me by some sort of external religious performance. The next account we find accentuates this even more in beginning in verse 6. On another Sabbath, that's, that's noteworthy, on another Sabbath... Again, hammering home this this key tenet of the Pharisaical religion. 
He enters the synagogue and there's a man whose right hand was withered. And the Pharisees are watching because they want to accuse him, right? They're just waiting. Please, please do something we can get you with. And here in this account, we see that Jesus again knows their hearts. He knows what they're thinking. It's like, watch out, it's a trap. And Jesus, I know it's a trap. That's the whole point. It's a trap. They're setting a trap for me. I know. And I'm going to walk into their trap and I will then trap them with the trap that they made to trap me. That's what Jesus does all the time. And so he, he goes in and, 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 and we find they're watching and they're kind of lying in wait almost to accuse him. In verse 8, he knows what they're thinking. And then what does he say to the man? Get up and come forward. So he actually wants to make an example of this guy in a good way. Come on up in front of everybody. Front and center. I mean, he could have done it subtly, right? He could have been like, hey, stretch out your hand. Cool, see you later. You know, could have done that. He did not do that. Front and center. And of course, you know, the, the rabbis who were there, they want him to do this so they can accuse him, but in doing so, they miss out on the whole point of what he's doing. Again, their commitment to their religion prevented them from seeing what the Lord Jesus was doing, what God was actually doing in that moment. And so Jesus gives a simple command. But before he does that, he asks them a question. And he, I think he's bringing before them these questions. He's not just trying to upset them. Jesus isn't going around going, here, let me just mess with these guys and make them mad. These are genuine appeals to them to repent. Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus also came to save the self-righteous because that's a sin. And so this question he asks in verse 9 I ask you, is it lawful to do good or harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to destroy it? He's, he's really trying to bring a question to them that, that they're forced into this dilemma of, well, of course, well, no, it isn't. Well, is it? No, it's, it's unanswerable. He wants them to kind of sit in that dilemma because he, he wants to bring them to the place of knowing him. And he's also showing them the irony of it all, right? I mean, is there... If they object to what he's about to do, what could possibly be a worse way to violate the, the sanctity of what God gives in Sabbath rest than to be against bringing well-being and healing and grace to people who need it? Worse yet, what's the worst way to violate the intent of the Lord for the Sabbath day than to actually be there plotting to kill the Lord of the Sabbath on the Sabbath day. And yet that's where they're going to end up. By their own desires and choice. So Jesus gives them that moment and then he says, stretch out your hand. And the man did so. And by the way, that is an act of faith, is it not? I mean, he could have just said, I can't stretch out my hand. My hand's withered. He didn't. He goes, 
trusting. He trusts him. Instant healing. Again, it's not kind of segmented. It's not gradual. It's not temporary. And then No, it's perfect, full healing in that moment. Jesus doesn't say an incantation. He doesn't go through some sort of ritual. It's just the authority of the Son of Man, the Lord of all. He tells him to stretch forth his hand, and it's healed. Now, what was the ailment the guy had? We don't exactly know. Some have said the way it's described there, it's likely his muscles had not been used for years. They had atrophied. So there was some kind of disease that prevented muscle use. The muscles had atrophied and, and just, it just had a, a, it looked like his hand could not move. It was withered. That was the description. The next thing you expect to happen in verse 11 is, whoa, this guy is healed. But what do you see instead? Are they filled with awe? No. The religious leaders are filled with rage. They're seethingly angry. They are filled with rage and they want nothing more than to destroy Jesus. And now they're going, what do we do? So their dedication to their religion caused them to miss out on seeing what God's doing. And their self-righteousness ends up being the very thing that kills them, ultimately. They plot the death of the Son of God to preserve their self-righteous religion. And what they do is they end up killing themselves in the process ultimately. So we look at an account like this, and it's very easy for us to go, man, those Pharisees, <sighs> fools, idiots. And we kind of go, well, good thing we're not like that. And then we kind of move on with our day. But if we're really going to look at this passage, we're going to have to stop, brothers and sisters, and think for a moment and go, wait a minute. What about us? What about me? What about you? Where, where are we at in terms of being very aware of our tendencies to do the same thing. When Jesus said to his disciples, he said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. He said that because it's contagious. And self-righteous religion, sadly, is alive and well today. And, and it's alive and well within evangelical churches. It's alive and well here in our church too. It can be subtle. And that's why we have to be aware. And that's why we're being called to be very, very, very alert against it. And so I, in light of that, I'd like to just take a, take a brief time just to kind of expand out from the passage we're in and just kind of look at, at the, a contrast between what the Bible as a whole would describe as self-righteous religion versus the reign of Jesus. And again, self-righteous religion ruins, Christ's reign renews. We've seen it here, but let's back off a bit and take a look. So uh, some contrast that we could see between self-righteous religion and the reign of Jesus. The first one would be this. In self-righteous religion, I give to God and then he owes me. God, I obeyed you. Give me the blessings I deserve because I follow you. Whereas under the reign of Jesus, Christ gives me a complete salvation. 
I gladly live for him. You see the difference? One is I'm obeying in order to gain this because it's a transactional relationship with God. The other is no, Christ has reached, he has saved me. He has accomplished that. And because of that, I live for him. We see that in several places in the scriptures. I encourage you to look some of these up. But, but you know, the fact is we love because he first loved us, right? <laughs> he first loved us. This has already happened. What we're doing is in response to him. Um, the other contrast would be this. Under self-righteous religion, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Whereas under the reign of Christ, it's I'm fully accepted in Jesus, therefore I obey him. Again, do you see the difference? So one is, I'm being accepted by God because I obey him. The other is, no, because of Jesus, I'm fully accepted by God. And then as a result of that, I want to live for him. That's living under Christ's reign. In Romans 1, it's a beautiful place, right, where, where he says, you know, therefore, by the mercies of God, because of all the mercies of God described in chapters 1 through 11 in Romans, because of the beauties of the gospel, present yourself to God as a living sacrifice. It's not present yourself a living sacrifice so you can receive all these gifts. That's not how the therefore works in that passage. It's pointing back to the first part of the book. So we got to make sure we understand that. I think, I think part of this, you can tell if you're kind of caught up in this thing. If your spiritual life is one where it's like, I've had a, a good week, I've walked with God, and so I'm up, I'm up, and then when I sin, it's like, Phew, I'm down. So I'm kind of like on this roller coaster between self-exaltation and arrogance and then utter despair. If, that's, if that characterizes your daily walk with the Lord Jesus, we need to stop and go, wait a minute, what's, what's really happening here? And am I setting my hope on my performance Am I setting my hope on my ability to, to, to keep standards? Or is my hope set on Jesus' finished work? And then as a result of his finished work and his love for me and the fact that he's received me into his kingdom, he's, he's immersed me into himself. Because of that, now am I living in a different way? It's a completely different motive or reason for obedience in that. Here's another one. Under self-righteous religion, I'm saved really by being better than everybody else. Under the reign of Christ, I'm saved when I admit I am not better than anyone else in any way. I mean, that ought to be a, a telltale thing. If I'm able to arrogantly go, well, at least I'm not like that. Whoa! What do you mean you're not like that? Um, when we find out in, in, in Romans, you know, chapter 3, we find a description of our, our predicament before God. And it says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You are in that all. So am I. When Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Again, that's the very beginning of our walk with him. We're admitting our need. Here's another contrast. Self-righteous religion tells us that the law is there to assure you that you're a good person and, and okay with God. Whereas the reign of Jesus shows us that the law is there to show you that you're not good under God's judgment and need a savior. 
That's what's happening with the Pharisees, right? They're actually using God's law to show, hey, look, we're doing this stuff. Matter of fact, we're, we're not even just doing what God said. We're raising it to a higher standard. And that's not what the law is for. You know, Galatians tells us clearly that the law is a tutor that's there to lead us to Jesus. The law is there to show us that we can't keep it. All of Romans chapter 2 does the same thing for the religious person who thinks that by their religiousness, they're going to be able to uh, gain God's acceptance. Paul says there, no. Every religious standard that you set up, you fail to keep it. So self-righteous religion versus the reign of Jesus. There's actually more, and for the sake of time, I'm going to move more quickly. Uh, but under self-righteous religion, the law is what you must laboriously carry out in order to avoid punishment. Under the reign of Christ, the law becomes what it looks like to live a life of love because you've already been perfectly loved. See the difference again? Different use of the law. Under self-righteous religion, relationships are often filled with judgment, whereas under the reign of Christ, relationships are characterized by mercy. I think it's another way we can see where we're really at on this. If I'm living in a demanding way with other people saying, you're not keeping my standard, get your act together. The implication is, I've got my act together. Why can't you do it? Additionally, under the self-righteous religion, we find that when hurt by others, grudges are held and there's a reluctance to forgive. Whereas under the reign of Christ, when hurt by others, there's an eagerness to forgive. Why? Because you've been forgiven so much. What does Jesus say in Matthew 18? He gives that beautiful story of the servant who owed the master a lot of money. I mean, like a year's worth of wages. The master forgives the servant. The servant leaves, goes out. Another servant's there who owes him probably about three days wages. And what happens with the servant to the other servant? He goes, no, you've got to pay me. And has him set off to debtor, debtor's prison. And then when the master finds out about that, it does not go well. The point is, if I see how much I've been forgiven, my relationships with other people are going to be merciful because I've been given so much mercy. But if I'm holding on to grudges, if I'm reluctant to forgive, I got to stop and go, wait a minute, what has actually happened here? Am I, am I really understanding what you've done with me, Lord? A last contrast we would see is, is simply this. Under self-righteous religion, there's a focus on behavior. So we live with a focus on behavior. Whereas under Christ's reign, we live from a changed heart. I love 2 Corinthians 5.17. When you've come to Jesus, you become a new creature. Old things have passed away. New things have come. We're in a new place. And so we need to ask ourselves a question just regarding, you know, what we've seen here in, in, in this account. Do you hold to a standard higher than God's standard? Maybe worse yet, do you hold other people in your life to a standard higher than God's standard? Do you seek assurance from the law or from the gospel? Where does it come from? 
And, and, and are you growing in mercy towards others in your life? You know, maybe maybe uh, I'm thinking, you know, you've got a neighbor, hypothetically. You've got a neighbor and, and, and uh, you know, she's the one that, that blasts her music every night right around 1030. And pick your least favorite music. Yes, it's that kind of music, okay? Whatever that is. How, how do you deal with that? Or maybe it's more intense than that for you. Maybe, maybe she, she walks out front and she's wearing a t-shirt and there's a few slogans on it. You know what? Transgender women are women. Love is love. And, and, and gay rights are civil rights. Let's say it's something along those lines. How are you responding to her? There's a, there's a really old Casting Crown song. It's really old, dating myself. But I love this line says this, God's got to change her heart before he changes her shirt. Do you realize that? Is that how we're living with the people around us? Or inadvertently, have we actually taken into ourselves and into our lives sort of a, a self-righteousness? Has that leaven polluted? If so, brothers and sisters, we need to repent. And thankfully, praise be to God, our hope is not resting even on um, our ability to, to, to uh, weed out all of this in our lives. Thankfully, Jesus is more committed to that than we are. And his reign renews. And if you're in Jesus today, his reign is renewing you right now. There's, there's a way in which your own life is, you know, our outer nature is wasting away. We all see that. But our true nature, we're told in the scriptures, our inner nature is being renewed every day. And then Paul goes on to say, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In other words, the right now, the suffering right now, the difficulty now, God's even using that to renew his children. So let's set our hope there. And let's be, be aware. Let's be aware of that leaven of the Pharisees. Let's be aware. Because self-righteous religion ruins. But Christ's reign renews. We now come to a time of the Lord's table. And, and as we do so, uh, I would just like to us to take a, a moment just to be quiet before God and pray. There's a handout you'll find in the bulletin uh, there in front of you that you got on the way in. And you can use that in this moment. But let's just quietly pray and let's just bring these things to God in prayer. However the Spirit was prompting or working in you. And then eventually um, the music will begin. And as the music starts, we'd encourage you to come forward to, to uh, partake of the elements. And we'll, we'll actually partake together. So go ahead and t receive them here and then go back to your seat and then we'll partake together. But let's just go before the Lord in quiet prayer right now.